Coming up this evening, an NTD business. President Biden announcing new sanctions against Russia today. It's going after Russian gold. Europe is looking to cut out Russian energy imports. How does that benefit China? And all the while, governments around the world trying to fight inflation. They're using price caps, tax cuts, and even more handouts. Will these policies work? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. The United States and its allies ramped up pressure on Moscow today over its invasion of Ukraine. Here's President Biden. We're also announcing new sanctions of more than 400 individuals and entities aligned with in alignment with the European Union. More than 300 members of the Duma, oligarchs and Russian defense companies that fuel the Russian war machine. They also blunted the Russian central bank's ability to defend its currency by deploying its reserves, including its gold reserves. The Treasury Department issued guidance warning that gold-related transactions involving Russia may be sanctionable by the U.S. The move aims to stop Russia from evading sanctions. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the sanctions are meant to strike at the heart of Russia's ability to finance and carry out what it's doing in Ukraine. The head of the world's biggest investment fund says the war in Ukraine has put an end to globalization as we know it. Larry Fink is the chief executive of BlackRock. Countries and businesses are cutting ties with Russia. They're also imposing sanctions against the country, including cutting off its central bank from its foreign reserves. Fink predicts that with Russia's decoupling from the world, governments and companies will reevaluate their supply chains and even consider, reconsider their dependency on other nations. He says that may lead companies to bring their operations closer to home. But to do that, companies will face higher costs, which will be inflationary. Bans on Russian oil and gas will also be inflationary for the regions that impose them. Europe, for example, relies heavily on Russian energy. Now it's going to have to pay more to get its energy from somewhere else. China, on the other hand, is not cutting Russia off. Not only that, it's reportedly getting its oil and gas at a discount since Russia... There's no one else to sell it to. Denise Don Ma gives us the details. If Europe goes ahead with a ban on Russian oil, millions of barrels of oil could be lost from the market. And that would drive up oil prices, especially for Europe, because it imports almost a third of its oil from Russia. Energy analyst Eric Eisenhammer says this would impact the European economy. The majority of the economy, by far, is still reliant on the traditional sources of energy. And every aspect of, of industry, from the uh, production, manufacturing, manufacturing has energy as one of its chief, chief inputs, uh, agriculture, you know, from the, the fuel that you need to run the tractors, from the fuel that you need to transport the food, um, every aspect is reliant on energy. China is the world's largest importer of oil and gas. Russia is the largest exporter. If Russia has nowhere to sell to, it's likely to sell to China at a discount. China is reportedly already getting around a $20 discount right now. If China can get cheaper oil, Chinese industries that rely on oil will be able to manufacture products at a lower cost. Energy expert Daniel Turner says that could result in the West losing manufacturing capacity to China. Yeah, if fossil fuel prices continue to rise the way they are, uh, um, 
it becomes unprofitable for businesses to operate, right? There's a certain price point where people will no longer buy your goods because they just can't afford to, because you can't afford to make them at, at, a, at an economic price point. That's why manufacturing moves overseas. That's but European economist Christian Bjornskull says Europe would only feel the pain of oil shortages for about a year. First of all, the, there is oil in the North Sea. There's oil and gas that can be extracted uh, at profitably at the current prices. Um, there's the option that, that Germany continues uh, uh, some of its nuclear power plants. Uh, the Brits are building new power plants, the French are building new power plants. So, so there's a change in, in the energy sector in Europe that in the long run will provide other sources of energy. The EU is still considering a ban of imports of Russian oil. Meanwhile, the U.S. president has already signed an executive order to ban the import of Russian oil. Don Ma, NTD News. And joining us now to discuss our changing political landscape is Christopher Balding, founder of the New Kite Data Labs think tank, specializes in the Chinese economy, financial markets, and technology. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Chris, are we seeing the world split in two, authoritarian versus democratic? I think that is uh, very fair, uh, what we are witnessing. I think it's also important to notice that this, that the ground for this has been laid for years. Uh, we have seen Russia and China coming together for years, and I think this is uh, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, rather than a new development in geopolitics, as a lot of people uh, are making it out to be. What does it mean for the United States? Well, the United States, there, there's there's still a lot of thinking in the United States that uh, China can be persuaded uh, to lean on Russia or that uh, China is making up its mind. And I think that is a, a, a great fallacy that a lot of people are laying their, their hopes on, when in reality, China and Russia have been, have been working closer and closer together uh, for many years, whether it's on military or other issues. And to be quite frank, they, they, uh, uh, Chairman Xi and Vladimir Putin have a fundamental similarly worldview in that they view uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, and their goal is to make is to uh, recreate this this romantic worldview of Russian and Chinese dominance. So you think it's purely political? Is there economic benefits for Russia and China? Um, that as, as alluded to in the piece earlier, there absolutely is for China in the way of, uh, of uh, lower cost natural resources um, and greater Russian dependence on Beijing. However, there is also on the other side an enormous risk, and I think a lot of people are finally waking up to this risk uh, about what uh, has been talked about for many years, about uh, what happens to the United States if, uh, if, if they need to decouple. Uh, from China, um, because we're seeing this play out right now with uh, with a lot of basic energy and commodity, uh, everything from fertilizer to gas and oil. Um, and now they're looking at this for manufactured products coming from China saying, well, gee, what happens if China really does something that we don't like? We need to revisit that position. So I think it is, uh, it is tearing this apart. Um, it's a process, however, that's been in, in play for many years. Considering China makes all our medicine, you think they have more leverage over the United States than vice versa, or how does the U.S. respond to this? Well, it's uh, one of the things is is that there's this odd uh, there's this odd 
the, the coupling going on there in the sense that China manufactures a lot of the base inputs for pharmaceuticals, um, but really the a, a lot of pharmaceuticals, uh, especially mid-range mid generics, uh, come from places in, in India and Latin America and, and also a significant amount from China. So I do think uh, China has some, but that is that is an industry that can that can be relocated uh, and, and manufacturing shifted. Um, and I, I do think it would be in the United States interest to diversify its its supply base in that area. But China does not hold as much influence as, as some people might might think that they do outside of the very basic inputs. You think the Chinese regime are liking what they're seeing with this war, or you think it's caused uncertainty even for them? Um, I, I I think it, it's it's fair to say, and, and again, we, we can't really say with any high degree of certainty, but I do think it's fair to say, like a lot of people, there's been surprises in this war. Um, I don't think that they are fundamentally surprised. I, uh, I, I think there's been some reporting by a couple of outlets uh, that seem to use CCP sources sourcing um, that Beijing was surprised. Um, I think all the other reporting basically is indicating that the United States was sharing intelligence uh, with with China. Um, it, it appears that Vladimir Putin and Xi were in talks regularly, um, likely about these uh, Russian actions. Um, so I, I think uh, it, it, I would be surprised if they were surprised. The one area where I think Beijing is probably a little bit surprised is the speed and strength with which a lot of the world came together to oppose Russian actions. What does this, let's call it, by deglobalization mean for the world economy in a word? I think it is a shift in, in maybe a couple of words. It, the, it raises the risk that there will be a significant shift away from China um, because now people are absolutely in the back of their mind thinking of, well, what happens if China um, starts killing people in Xinjiang? What happens if they uh, impose a naval blockade around Taiwan? Um, and there's all kinds of scenarios at, uh, at play there. Um, South China Sea, and all of a sudden people are going, wait a minute, this would mean my supply chain in China, my business dealings with a university in China, my it's fill in the blank. And people are already looking at uh, the degree of support that uh, Russia is receiving from China and asking a lot of uncomfortable questions about China. And I think if you take China out of that question, that's basically going to be a monumental shift in, in global politics and economics. I think a monumental shift is, is, is the way to put it. It's been incredible. Christopher Balding, New Kite Data Labs, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And the Moscow Stock Exchange has reopened for the first time in almost a month. Stocks rallied, but they did get some help from the government. Foreigners who own a big part of the exchange, 75%, they aren't allowed to sell their stocks. They're only allowed to buy. And only select stocks are available to trade. The rest are still halted. Companies that benefit from high oil and gas prices performed well, including major names like Gazprom and Luke Oil. But the White House calls it a charade intended to artificially prop up share prices after February's sell-off. Stocks fell 33% after Russia invaded Ukraine and the exchange was closed the very next day. Back stakes side, stateside, stocks ended sharply higher today. 
Dow rose 349 points, 1 percent. S&P 500 gained 64 points, 1 and 4 tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq gained 269 points, 1 and 9 tenths of a percent today. And the IRS uncovered almost $2 billion, billion with a B, in COVID relief fraud. Closed over 600 cases of loans that were obtained illegally, money that was meant for Americans struggling through COVID. A lot of the time, people just lied about their financial situation to get the money. Washington has given out $3.6 trillion so far. It's earmarked $4.2 trillion. That would be almost 20% of U.S. GDP. So when the government is putting that much money into the economy, how does that affect inflation? When more people have more money to spend, they generally spend more, causing prices to rise. So NTD's Con Fredrickson looked at the different government policies being implemented right now to help fight inflation. Different governments are dealing with high inflation in different ways. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom wants to give out a $9 billion tax refund. $400 for each registered vehicle that an individual owns, up to two vehicles. And in Canada, in the province of Quebec, the government wants to give everyone $500 if they make less than $100,000 a year. Quebec Finance Minister Eric Girard says this will counter the rising cost of living. They're trying to sort of ease the burden of the inflation on the people, but um, generating more money to go hand it out just makes the problem worse. Eric Alexander is a financial advisor with Benchmark Income Group. Alexander says inflation is caused by having too many dollars in the system, which makes everything more expensive. Pushing money into the economy in order to kind of stabilize things is great in the moment, but all of that money supply starts to raise prices on its own. And in Africa, Egypt has created price caps on bread. That means businesses can't sell bread at a higher price than an amount set by the government. Price caps never work, and they never have worked. All it will do is create shortages, and as soon as you lift the price caps, the uh, inflation will be worse than it was before. Michael Bussler is a professor of finance at Stockton University. Bussler says price caps cause shortages because businesses will produce less and consumers will buy more. And in the UK, British Finance Minister Rishi Sunak is cutting taxes. Giving somebody a tax cut gives them more money to spend which will only help sustain inflation over time. Lance Roberts is the chief investment strategist for RIA Advisors. Roberts says the way to fight inflation is to A, stop sending out the money, and B, incentivize companies to produce more product. Um, you know, and this is something that we, we just have to rebalance that inflation equation of supply and demand. The Federal Reserve's inflation target is 2%. It's currently running at two and a half times that rate. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. The Fed now wants to bring inflation back down to its 2% target. To do that, we all know it's raising interest rates, but that doesn't come without risks. Low rates were used to stimulate and gas the economy. High rates could do the opposite. That's why we hear about the Fed looking for a soft landing, raising rates just enough to take steam out of the economy and money out of people's pockets without plunging us into a recession. Anthony Davies is an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University. Asked him how fine a line the Fed is walking. Uh, it's walking a pretty fine line for a couple of reasons. 
One, we've gone through an unprecedented period of an increase in the money supply starting back at the age of COVID. And that has contributed to this tremendous, both first a run up in the stock market and now the inflation. The second thing that's going on that's also unprecedented is the shock to the supply system because businesses have been shut down. And it's kind of a one-two punch of on the one hand, the increase in the money supply and the other, the restriction of the economic growth both of those things, each of those things individually would contribute to inflation. So we have that on, on, on one side, the inflation, and obviously everyone wants to see an end to the inflation. On the other side of the fine line, we have the, this risk of a recession if they do hike too fast, correct? Yes, that's right. The way the Fed does this is by contracting the money supply. It contracts the money supply. On the one hand, that helps to control inflation. On the other, it pushes interest rates up. And as interest rates up go up, businesses are less apt to invest. People are less apt to make big-ticket purchases. And so the economy cools down a bit. So the Fed has to walk a fine line here between, on the one hand, controlling inflation, and then the other, uh, pushing us perhaps back into a recession by increasing unemployment. Which scenarios are mo uh, is most likely? That's a very good question. I think at the end, oddly, it comes down to a political question. That is, what are people willing to live with? Because we're going to have to make a trade-off here. Do we want uh, to control prices, in which case we're going to have to run the risk of recession? Uh, or are we not willing to run the risk of recession, in which case we've got to deal with the higher prices? But either way, all of this finds its roots in the unprecedented government spending. The Federal Reserve has had to print money to finance the federal spending, and that's what's put us where we are now. You mentioned stocks, bonds, housing, everything at the beginning of the discussion. What do you think happens to those prices over the next 12 months? Well, over the next 12 months, if the Fed does indeed cut back on the money supply, we see interest rates going up. It's going to uh, put a kind of a cap on housing prices. We've seen housing prices uh, jump uh, in part because of the inflation, but that's going to be uh, kind of leveling off if all of a sudden it's more costly to get a mortgage because the interest rates are higher, people are gonna be less apt to buy housing. Um, also, the big uh, wild card here is what happens with businesses. Are they successful in bringing workers back to the office or are workers going to be working uh, remotely on a somewhat permanent basis? Uh, it's this move to remote work that has been driving in part the increase in the housing prices as people move out of urban areas into suburban areas. A lot to watch. Professor Anthony Davies, appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Weekly jobless claims hit a 53-year low last week. Today's numbers from the Labor Department show just 187,000 people in the U.S. filed for initial weekly unemployment benefits last week, much lower than expected. The last time jobless claims were that low was 1969. It's a bright spot for the economy right now, even as people feel the pinch of higher oil and gas prices and other inflation pressures. The problem is... The strong jobs number could lead the Federal Reserve to step up its pace of interest rate hikes as a way to keep inflation in check. And rideshare giant Uber and iconic yellow taxis in New York have been bitter rivals for nearly a decade since Uber was created. But now former foes become friends in a surprising new partnership. Adidas Phil Zoe has the story. All right. Thank you so much. 
Grabbing a taxi or grabbing an Uber, there used to be a big difference, but now you soon may be able to get the iconic yellow cab taxi on the Uber app. Uber reached an agreement to list all New York City taxis on its app. That's according to an exclusive report from the Wall Street Journal. We look at rides over here. You see it right here? They show if you accept trips. Bitter rivals of the past not too long ago, frankly, hopefully coming together. Um, so that's the biggest surprise, I think. I spoke to a New York taxi driver of 10 years, Giulio Palmieri. But it's probably a good idea, you know. The more opportunities we have, the better for everyone, you understand? Palmieri says he has no hard feelings towards Uber. If you go outside of Manhattan, two, three, four in the morning, you know, you definitely pick up someone going to the airport. Mark Warnquist is the CEO of insure tech company InShare. He was formerly the global claims director at Uber, managing claims for over 70 countries at the time. I'm hopeful that the, the prices don't go up. They might go up a little bit. We might see a little bit of that. Uh, but, you know, we've already seen some price price hikes with the pandemic. So I don't think that's the biggest part of this. The former Uber director says with rideshare and last mile delivery picking up, there's been a shortage of drivers. Uber and, and other platform companies have, have been trying to find whatever ways they can to increase the supply of drivers. And Uber just did that, right, with 14,000 drivers. That's a, that's a very big deal for New York City and for Uber. For this service, taxis won't be using the meter to charge a fare. Instead, drivers will get paid in a similar fashion to riders ordering an Uber X. The partnership is expected to launch later this spring. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Pro athletes and entertainers no longer have to worry about being uh, vaccinated in New York City. New York's mayor today says they'll be exempt from the city's vaccine mandate. Mayor Eric Adams said the mandate was not fair to players and performers who lived in the city because those visiting the city who were unvaccinated were already exempt from the requirement. Currently, only non-residents are exempt under this executive order. We expanded it to residents of New York City. It's unimaginable. We were treating our performers differently because they lived and played for home teams. It's not acceptable. Last year, New York basketball star Kyrie Irving missed home games because he refused to comply with the city's vaccine mandate. Now he can play in the home games. But the city's vaccine mandate still applies to people in other lines of work, and the city is facing pushback against the exemption. One city official says it's not fair that players get the exemption, but not the ushers or janitors who also work in the arena. Government employees are still required to be vaccinated. The city has suspended some of them, including firefighters, for not getting the shots. And although New York City has eased virus restrictions, small businesses are still being affected by the decline in the number of office workers. Anthony Sean Marshall has more. New York City has a problem. Workers aren't returning to the office. The effects have been trickling down onto the small business economy. In midtown Manhattan, offices are getting barely one-third of the pre-pandemic workforce. I spoke with Ashley Ranslow of the National Federation of Independent Business about the effects on small businesses. If workers aren't in downtowns, if they're not reporting to their offices, they're not stopping and getting a cup of coffee. They're not going out to lunch. They're not visiting the delis and the corner stores or the dry cleaners. And that impacts a whole host of small businesses 
and just local economic activity. Muhammad's coffee shop has been making just enough money to survive. Office worker customers have been disappearing. You know, most of them, maybe they work one day or two days at the office, but the rest of the week they, uh, they stay home. Because when they come back, I ask them, well, they said I was working from home. He said the lack of tourists has also been slowing down business. It's because this place, mostly for offices, workers, and uh, tourists. Local people, just few. Since there is no tourist, I'm still struggling. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Nicholas at Greenblend says there hasn't been much of a decrease in business from office workers and that business is booming. Yes, we do. We get a lot of office workers, especially through Uber, and that's how we've been servicing them, you know, keeping everything healthy and getting their food to them. It could be a little while before businesses are able to bounce back. What we have seen from our members, from our surveys, small businesses, 67% still have don't expect full economic recovery until the second half of 2022 or 2023. Some companies like Apple and Twitter have made schedules to get workers back into the office, but Meta Facebook has invested in a future filled with virtual workspaces. Their management team, including Mark Zuckerberg, is working remotely from different countries. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Still to come, stay with us. Ralph Lauren debuts this year's fall winter collection with his first fashion show since before the pandemic. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. For all you vegetarians out there, you have a new option during snack time. Beyond Meat is unveiling its plant-based jerky. The company had already replaced meat with its hamburgers, sausages, meatballs, and chicken. Now they've turned to jerky. Officials say there are currently three flavors, original, teriyaki, and hot and spicy. And just like beef jerky, these vegetarian-friendly options are marinated and slow-roasted. Instead of meat, they're made from ingredients like peas and mung beans. Customers interested in checking out the Beyond Meat Jerky will be able to find them in all places where traditional jerky is sold. And finally this evening, after so much time apart during the pandemic, fashion designer Ralph Lauren debuted his fall-winter 2022 collection. He used, quote, timeless designs to unite us all. The show was held at the Museum of Modern, Modern Art in Midtown Manhattan. It comes as the fashion world tries to turn the page on the shutdown. Some well-known actors even participated in the show. Ralph Lauren says he tried to focus on classic looks for a timeless style. As such, the show showcased suits, jackets, and pants in black and white. The designer said a touch of red was sprinkled about for romance. His last show was back in 2019. And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, that's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.